Good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> My name is Adam Sled. I am the Recovery Support Services Director at Unity Recovery, and I'm honored to be presenting with Brian Gorman and Melissa Ruggiero. I'd like to thank Brian and Melissa for asking me to present with them today and for the Pennsylvania Legal Aid Network for hosting us as well. Just tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, again, I'm the Recovery Support Services Director at Unity. We're a recovery community organization in Philadelphia. A recovery community organization is like a YMCA for people in recovery. It's a drop-in center where we have space for activities as well as uh, individual peer support services at the center. Uh, I also serve on the board of directors of a small grassroots nonprofit in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Uh, I've founded a um, collegiate recovery community at the university where I got my graduate degree. Uh, and I also want to share with you that I was convicted of possession with intent to distribute in 2010, which was the impetus for my recovery beginning in 2011. During that time, I was able to go to graduate school and do a lot of other great things, um, which culminated in a clemency vote uh, during the first digital um, Board of Pardons hearing in Pennsylvania just a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm sharing that with you because I'm evidence of what can happen when attorneys and legal system work together to support recovery. So our objectives for this afternoon are to understand recovery and its prevalence in our community, define stigma in the context of recovery and understand how stigma can harm people in recovery, identify ways that we can combat stigma in the legal system, discover the, how the use of recovery positive and person first language can help you get better outcomes for your clients, and also discuss the ethical implications of person-first language. So to begin, to begin with, uh, what is recovery? Recovery uh, has been defined many different times in many different ways. Um, the most recent definition was done by the Recovery Science Research Collaborative. And their definition says that recovery is an individualized, intentional, dynamic, and relational process involving sustained efforts to improve wellness. Um, this is pretty broad, right? It's a very broad definition. There are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is to be as inclusive as possible. Uh, it does include mental health as well as substance use disorders and other behavioral health disorders. Um, but one of the other reasons for the, the broadness of this definition is to avoid um, excluding anyone. Previous definitions included the idea of abstinence from substances, and this actually created stigma towards other pathways that didn't involve total abstinence. Recovery in our communities, uh, we, we've estimated that about 10% of people in the United States are in recovery. Um, it's interesting when we start looking more closely at this population, only about half of those people actually identify as being in recovery. Um, half of those people reported using an assisted pathway. And there are other studies that estimate the prevalence of 90 to 10%. It's interesting that only about half of people embrace the recovery identity. What this means on the ground is that recovery for many individuals is not going to resemble what we traditionally think of as recovery. There are people in what, what you might call stealth recovery. They're in recovery, but they don't talk about it. They don't think about it. They don't present that way. And when you look at their lifestyle, you may not see them as a person in recovery. This became very apparent, by the way, when I was in my Board of Parole hearing and the, um, 
board members who are questioning the individuals like myself who came up. And inevitably, the questions were about continued substance use. And some of these individuals reported that they still drank socially. The board members asking the questions were not particularly pleased with that answer because their paradigm of recovery meant that they shouldn't be using anything. So that was interesting to see. Um, also in the recovery prevalence and outcomes, we know that about half or a little more than half of people in recovery are abstinent from all substances, but about 20% of people are not abstinent from all substances and about a quarter of people are not abstinent at all. So there are a lot of different pathways and methods of recovery uh, that are not always talked about um, or noticeable when we look at the recovery population. So what we're really here to talk about today is stigma, bias, and discrimination and how it affects people in recovery. So what are stigma and discrimination? One of the handouts that I made available to you today, and I said to Melissa and Brian, you know, I'm outside of my wheelhouse here, but I tried to find an article about the concept of stigma in, in the legal system in your world. And um, stigma in that sense, if I understand it right, is something that's part of assigning um, blame or criminality in, in prosecution. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about that because it's not my area of expertise, but I thought it was important to distinguish that from stigma in, in the recovery community, which, you know, is kind of similar, except that in the recovery community, our perspective on stigma is that it's kind of undeserved, right? Um, stigma, instead of being applied to an act of, uh, that someone or a behavior that someone has done that's wrong, uh, substance use disorder is actually a medical disorder or behavioral health disorder. Um, and we try to separate the person from the disorder. Now this gets a little tricky, um, especially in, in the context of substance use disorders and legality because many of the behaviors that accompany a substance use disorder are in fact illegal. Um, so, and I think you're probably aware that the legal system has evolved in its treatment of, of these individuals and their behaviors. There's a difference between stigma and discrimination as well. Stigma is the idea that someone is different or, or bad or, or what have you because of a behavior, but discrimination is when it is carried into action. Um, it's a condition, rule, or policy that disproportionately impacts only certain individuals. And we have examples of both, um, just stigma and discrimination against people in recovery. So what are some things that contribute to stigma? Usually we're talking about labels or words. Um, there are many labels that we use for people using substances or people in recovery uh, that contain a whole lot of stigma. Uh, some of these are obvious, like dope fiend uh, or junkie. Some of these, however, are not so obvious. Uh, and at least one of them that I'm going to talk about today used to be a clinical term and a, di a diagnostic term, which adds to the confusion. But words like addict, alcoholic, relapse, these are words that we use in everyday conversation. And, and many people wouldn't realize that these words are actually quite stigmatized. Even the word addiction, I try to avoid using the word addiction and say substance use disorder instead. And then the stereotypes that accompany these words. Uh, this has been fueled by years of campaigns uh, from the war on drugs, you remember the egg and the frying pan that used to be on television, uh, as well as 
characterizations and, and portraits of people in, in recovery and people who use substances as criminals, people who are lost in self-indulgence self or uh, selfishness, or people who can't be trusted. So here are some concrete examples. Very often you'll see this in the press. Uh, there are headlines that, that use language kind of recklessly, uh, focusing on, on problems. And of course, we know that in the press, if it bleeds, it leads. So you'll see sensationalist language used very often to attract people to headlines, and of course, in the online environment to get clicks. Discrimination is when this is put into code. So this is a, um, I'm sorry for the small screenshot, but it's a section of a code applying to um, insurance benefits, and it's an exclusion of people with substance use or chemical, uh, what used to be called chemical dependency. We don't say that anymore either. There's that word abuse, by the way. Uh, in, under DSM-4, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual used to uh, deliver behavioral health diagnoses, there used to be three tiers of addiction, which was use, abuse, and dependence. So abuse was a clinical term. Now in DSM-5, we characterize substance use disorder as mild, moderate, or severe. So the language has changed uh, to avoid that stigma. Another example of stigma is um, a news report about Narcan parties. This was a myth. I can promise you that Narcan parties never happened, even though they said they did. Uh, the myth was that people would deliberately overdose and then use Narcan to um, revive each other. Um, the stigma contained here actually is that people who use a lot of heroin deserve to die and they are somehow cheating death by frivolously using Narcan to revive each other, um, which is a complete distortion of, of how Narcan is, is accurately used. And then discrimination. Here's an example that you may remember from the pre press um, a year or two ago. It's a, a couple who overdosed in their car with their child in the backseat. And unfortunately, all three of their faces were used in the news uh, without being masked as I have masked them here. And the question to ask oneself is, would we do this for two people who had a heart attack in their car or a diabetic coma in their car? Of course, we would not. So the labels that we use can result in internal and external bias. Um, and I'm gonna talk about the difference between implicit and explicit bias in just a couple of minutes. Um, but we know that stigma is actually a barrier to people accessing treatment. Uh, it, it keeps people, in fact, there's a new study that just came out uh, from the federal government which showed exactly that. The number, it's from SAMHSA. The number one reason that people didn't seek treatment was because of the stigma associated with it. We know that only about 10, one in 10 people who need treatment actually access it. Uh, and that's one of the biggest reasons why. It also influences the opinion of the voting public and legislators who pass laws that affect things like insurance parity and things like that, that enable people in recovery or seeking recovery to access treatment. It also impacts the quality of the healthcare that's delivered. We have stories of people being turned away from emergency rooms after overdosing instead of being cared for and things like that happening. So the research, um, 
the executive director of Unity is a gentleman named Robert Ashford, who did research on implicit and explicit bias re related to recovery language. And here are the findings that they came up with. Uh, I'm just gonna get all of these out here. So for the term substance abuse, abuse versus substance use disorder invoked greater explicit bias in treatment professionals and implicit bias in the general population. So implicit bias, if you're not aware, is subconscious or unconscious bias. And explicit bias is conscious bias or bias that you're aware of. It is, it is possible for a person to have implicit bias that runs counter to their explicit beliefs. In other words, you could say that you don't have a bias but you could actually have the bias without knowing it. This is tested through um, kind of a, a video timing device where you actually press the space bar when you see certain words uh, and it's done, it measured in microseconds um, to measure people's reactions and that's how they gauge implicit versus explicit bias. So the term opioid addict, uh, invoked greater negative implicit and explicit bias. The term alcoholic had negative implicit bias in the general public, which means that people didn't think it was a bad term if you asked them, but the experiment demonstrated implicit bias for that word. Same for the word um, relapse. Recurrence of use is the current term that we like for that. It's a little more of a mouthful, recurrence of use or recurrence of symptoms instead of relapse. Most people will still stay relapse, um, but recurrence of use actually had a better implicit bias rating with the general public than the word relapse. And for the next one, we have the terms medication-assisted treatment, medication-assisted recovery, and the word addict, which is still used quite a bit. I call that the A word. I don't like that word. Um, the word addict inc invoked greater negative implicit bias in the general public. Um, again, a word that a lot of people will use and not realize that they have a bias against it. Medication-assisted treatment is pretty common. Uh, the word pharmacotherapy is now preferred, another mouthful. I'm still getting used to that one myself, but it does have greater positive implicit bias in the general public. And the terms medication-assisted recovery. Medication-assisted recovery is an important term because there's a difference between treatment and recovery. So when you're talking about somebody who's using MAT, you're saying that they're still in treatment. A person continues in recovery long after they've completed treatment. And there is such a thing as medication-assisted recovery, where people are long past the stage of treatment, still in recovery, but still using medication also. Part of the stigma associated with medication-assisted treatment is that it's only okay as long as you're headed for abstinence or that you plan to get off the medication eventually because there's stigma even within our community from abstinence, abstinent people to people using medication. So we talk a lot about medication-assisted recovery because it's actually perfectly fine for a person to continue using medication in their recovery, and it's a perfectly legitimate pathway in recovery, but it's still heavily stigmatized. The term MAR and long-term recovery had greater positive implicit bias in the general public MAR is better received than MAT when you're talking about somebody who's in long-term recovery. Uh, 
I cannot see the chat, so I don't know if there have been any questions. I'm going to pause here and ask, are there any questions uh, up to this point? Okay, good. Just making sure. And there are more, uh, and there are some that still need to be researched because it takes a, a year or two to publish a research paper. And Robert will tell you that even in the time that he published the paper, there were more terms that people continue to ask about uh, that need to be researched. And again, it's not uh, cut and dried because uh, anyone who knows anything about recovery will say, well, what about when somebody goes to a meeting and says, hi, my name's Adam and I'm an addict, or my name's Adam and I'm an alcoholic. It's okay then, right? So that is true. In a recovery uh, pathway, in, in, a, in a recovery meeting, in that specific specialized setting, um, it's actually very empowering for a person to use that language. It's kind of a paradox. Um, it's one of the philosophies of the 12-step fellowship, which is that identifying that way is a reminder of where a person came from. So within those rooms and within those settings, these rules of bias and stigma don't really apply. They're really most important in the general public where people who are uninitiated to these concepts don't understand why it's okay to say addict or why it's actually a good thing to say addict sometimes. For most people, it's just very stigmatizing. So there is a right for people in recovery to self-identify and self-label, um, but this should be treated just like it is for people of color or people other, of other persuasions who may choose to use derogatory labels to describe themselves. It's okay for them, but it's not okay for us, right? <laughs> So the same uh, attitude can be applied here. So what does this mean? I've given you also in the handouts some graphics that are helpful as quick reference guides for preferred terms. Um, and person first is always a safe rule. If we just remember that everyone is a person regardless of their condition or their um, recovery status, uh, you can rarely go wrong if you Put the person first. And so these are available to you as well. Language, of course, is just part of it. We also deal with a lot of imagery in the press. Uh, and it's very frustrating at times. I will see an article about recovery or an article about a recovery center, which should be positive and uplifting. And there's a picture of a needle right next to it for no reason except that it grabs people's attention. So Imagery is another thing that we can be mindful of if we are in the position to be disseminating materials to the public or to a courtroom. Um, law enforcement also does this. It happens in social media. This can be just as stigmatizing as the language. So how does stigma manifest in the legal system? We have things like disproportionate sentencing, street, three strikes laws, crack versus cocaine sentencing enhancements, excuse me, insurance parity laws. We actually had to pass laws to make the insurance companies pay for behavioral health disorders, which by the way, are still not being enforced. Housing discrimination and legislation attached to that. And finally, uh, even within the legal community, there is a nonprofit organization for attorneys seeking recovery 
which serves in, in among other things to protect them from stigma as well because just in in that community as in many other communities the medical community and others uh, there's stigma attached to substance use and recovery so at this point i'm going to turn it over to um, my colleagues melissa and brian uh, to take you through the rest of it thank you thank you adam um, if you could go to the next slide, Adam. Um, so my name's Melissa Ruggiero, um, and as the Kelly had done the introduction, I am a staff attorney at Neighborhood Legal Services. Uh, but previously, I was at the Allegheny County Office of Conflict Counsel in Pittsburgh, um, where I represented clients who were unable to be represented by the Public Defender's Office because of a conflict of interest. Um, and then were referred to a conflict counsel. Um, so I first uh, found out about person first um, language or recovery dialect um, through the uh, attending meetings with the South Pittsburgh Opioid Action Coalition um, in my part of Pittsburgh where I am from and where I currently live. Uh, we had a lot of, um, unfortunately, a lot of folks um, that were passing away um, from overdoses. And so uh, as a community, we wanted to be able to help, help each other and, and help those with um, substance use disorders. And so one of the initial uh, trainings that I received was actually from Adam. Um, and I actually have that, the slide he had showed about recovery dialects, the words we use matter. I actually have that up on my bulletin board um, at work. And so moving on to neighborhood legal services, I wanted to continue to learn about this language because I know even though being on the civil side, um, and I've been at neighborhood legal services since June, I have had clients who are applying for social security disability, um, who, who are persons with substance use disorder. Um, and I, I wanted to be able to make sure that, um, I wasn't doing anything uh, to pass on that stigma to them um, and wanted to learn more about it. And I thought it would be beneficial um, for others at my office and then throughout Pennsylvania uh, working on legal aid cases to also learn about it. So I always try to find ways of, okay, you get this knowledge that Adam has just given us, which is, is wonderful and the research that's out there I never knew of before, but what can we do every day. So what can we do to address stigma, bias, and discrimination? Adam, if you could go to the next slide. And, and so what can we do? Um, and, and so again, here using the language, um, using person with, with a substance use disorder, um, person with an opioid use disorder, um, person with an alcohol use disorder, recurrence of use, uh, pharmacotherapy um, or medication-assisted treatment or person in recovery, rather than using that other language that I try very hard not to have in my vocabulary anymore. Um, so changing the language of substance use and recovery begins with those it impacts. Um, this is those in recovery, those that are actively using substances, family members, friends, scientists, media, and advocates. 
So not just even our clients that we're coming in contact, but I think everybody that we're coming in contact with that could include family members and friends and colleagues that we try to use this language. Um, and also, I think Adam, when we were, and Brian, we were um, discussing this is, you know, we, I know that I sometimes use maybe the language I'm not supposed to, um, but is to be forgiving with ourselves and to at least try. Um, but then also that Adam had pointed out is that this language is constantly changing. Um, even in the substance use disorder field. Um, so I, I think it's important to keep trying, but then also to be forgiving to yourselves that, you know, maybe sometimes you forget or, um, and it's also, it's evolving, it's changing um, this language. Um, and so also I think that's um, important is it starts with changing our own language, but also um, gently telling others um, when their language is perpetuating stigma and discrimination. And I, I think some ways of maybe possibly doing that is, is just in the conversation to use the person first language, even though the other person might not be, and that could provide a contrast. And so that might be able to change the tone, but I think it's always easier um, you know, to do it gently rather than maybe shaming someone, um, and especially if it's a colleague, but then also when we're in the courtroom with a judge or we're in the courtroom with opposing counsel, um, is, is to do it gently. Um, and hopefully that can have an influence on folks changing their language. Adam, if you could go to the next slide. Sorry to interrupt. This is Kelly. I'm going to launch the first of the CLE question boxes. Attorneys, please respond. It'll be up for about a minute and a half. Thank you, and please feel free to continue. Okay, and so um, what can we do um, also, not just with that chart that was using um, that provided examples of, of the positive language that we could use, that person-first language. Um, but things that we could do is put, use that language um, in, our, in our motions, pleadings, um, you know, for Social Security, your memorandums to the administrative law judge. Um, also, when we are speaking to opposing counsel, um, I have a lot more experience because when I was uh, doing criminal defense work, was uh, was talking to the district attorneys. But I think the same can be applied in, in, in civil matters is that when you're trying to negotiate or trying to work something out with opposing counsel is that we can use this language. I think you're, you're sometimes trying, when you're negotiating, trying to maybe convince the other side is using that um, positive language. and telling your client's story. Um, and I, I think you wanna be as positive as possible. And I think using the person first language can really maybe try to help tell your client's story when you're trying to negotiate with the other side and, and trying to get your client's story across their point of view. Um, additionally, when you're in court um, to, to use this language before the judge, um, when you're presenting arguments, I think is is another way way to do that. Um, 
I know for myself, um, I used it in court when I was representing clients in mental health court. And for one example, I used, um, I had referred to my client and said, you know, your honor, my client is a person with substance use disorder. And the judge was, he knew I'd been in his courtroom quite a while, but he said, Rogero, what are you doing? What, what's that mean? And I said, well, your honor, I said, I understand maybe we don't see eye to eye on um, substance use disorders, but let me try to, you know, tell you the positive things um, that my client has been able to do, you know, and, and so I was using that language throughout. He kind of was rolling his eyes at me, but at the end of the day, this is a client that was charged with a person not to possess a firearm and was looking at a, a, a prison sentence. Um, but at the end of it, the judge ended up giving my client um, probation, uh, which was something that my client uh, wanted. And, and so th that worked out. Um, but most of the time, just using that language in front of the judges, you know, I think it, it shows them and teaches them to maybe hopefully emulate that language and to use that again in their courtrooms. Um, and, and then, like I said, using it with our colleagues, I know I put up that chart in my office on my bulletin board um, and I passed it out that um, recovery dialects to my colleagues um, at my former job. And I think that was all something that we can do to share with our colleagues about using that person first language. Um, if Adam, if you could go to the, to the next slide. And so this is the person first pledge. This is also included in the materials, um, th that we have. And, um, I had signed this as a member of the South Pittsburgh Opioid Action Coalition. Um, and actually September is uh, recover is recovery sorry is uh, recovery month and actually this Saturday in Pittsburgh we had a recovery walk and uh, our city council actually recently approved a will of council that commits to using person first language uh, when discussing issues of substance use disorder and recovery um, and, and so this is something, again, that can help us and remind us of using th this language and really trying to um, incorporate it as much as we can, I think, in our professional and as well as um, our personal lives. And so, again, this is included in the, in the material um, that we have, um, and it's not just, you know, I think we're introducing this to the legal aid in Pennsylvania that is mentioning the example from Pittsburgh City Council. This is branching out to, to other areas, um, even into our local government. Um, and so those are just some things, but I think maybe in the chat, if any of you want to maybe, if you think of examples that you could use this language. Um, like I said, I'm new to, to neighborhood legal services and that there might be other situations um, that I haven't come across, but that maybe you can think of that come across. Um, and then also maybe thinking about in your own offices, using these handouts and the person first pledge um, to be able to use that. 
um, and to perhaps introduce it to your office. Um, because I really think at the end of the day, I mean, part of what our jobs are to do is when working with our clients um, and gaining their trust. And I think if we're able to have this knowledge of using this language, that we can help them feel less stigma and shame about themselves, but also to establish that trust in a client-attorney client relationship. And that, you know, the more our clients are able to tell us, the more that we're able to help them. Um, and to be able to get to that point, I think they need to be able to trust you. And I think that part of learning to trust you is also that, you know, you are using language that's making them feel like, you know, that they can talk to you, you're not um, stigmatizing, stigmatizing them, or that you have any bias towards them. Um, and, and so I'm going to leave it off now. I think it's the next slide. It starts with Brian to kind of then go into the ethics um, part and how this using this language can help us um, with our um, with our professional responsibility. Thanks. Adam, if you could go to the next slide. Yep. Thanks, Melissa. And can you can hear me okay, Adam and Melissa? Yep. Yes. Thank you. Um, your comments, I know we've talked a couple of times about this, but your comments today have made me think about the fact that um, the language that we use can be a great indicator of the mentality that we have. And the mentality that we have will more often than not lead to consequences or results. Um, so I can comment on that in a minute. I just see that Wendy Beeching had mentioned um, stigma regarding neighborhoods and police language. I think you might be referring to something like when police refer to areas as high crime areas or <clears throat> something of that nature. If you're referring to something else or if Adam or Melissa want to comment on that, I think that would be helpful to do so. But that's a good point. I certainly wouldn't want to live in a neighborhood that I consider to be my home and someone else called a high crime area. Uh, perhaps I wouldn't feel that way about someplace I maybe even grew up. Um, maybe if you're referring to something else, I, I'd certainly welcome that. But to turn back to the, and, and I'll get into the rules here in, in a, a few moments, but important that we lay some groundwork, the language that we use really the conversation we're having about appropriate language to use um, regarding uh, substance use disorder and recovery um, isn't a really a new conversation in the country with respect to using the appropriate type of language so that we can demonstrate the type of progress we need to make. I was thinking as you were talking that back in the 1960s, uh, Cassius Clay turned his name to Muhammad Ali. And there were a lot of people who refused to call him Muhammad Ali. And I don't think they refused to call him Muhammad Ali because they knew him or, uh, you know, had some importance to the name Cassius Clay. There was something deeper there that, of their rejection of his, uh, his new name. Um, and that was an indicator as to how they viewed in my view, at least, how they viewed him 
probably how they viewed a black man and how they viewed uh, someone who had become a Muslim. Uh, more recently, um, well, we, some things that we've dealt with, um, we still have language in our own statute for LSC programs that refers to undocumented immigrants as aliens. Uh, people call them illegal immigrants. Um, you know, we, we say undocumented immigrants or undocumented residents, uh, not just because it's correct, but that its correctness uh, is indicative of an appropriate attitude, mentality, and result that we think should, should be occurring. Um, and there, of course, are many other examples, but I would analogize those sorts of situations to what um, Adam is talking about, also Melissa is talking about. Um, and uh, I also should confess <clears throat> that I have been a violator for several years of this, and uh, Adam had a very kind uh, talking to me about that in, in preparation. When Melissa um, invited me I, to the presentation, I said, well, you should know who you're inviting. I'm somebody who unfortunately uses the word addiction uh, more regularly than SUD. And I shared an article I had written that used the word addiction uh, and not SUD. And even in the article commented on the fact that I used the word addiction. So I'm a, a recently reformed person here. And uh, I have heard the word substance use disorder for quite, well, not a, a long time, but longer than I have used it. Um, and when I first heard the phrase sub, S, substance use disorder or SUDs, I had heard it uh, a few years back from a director of a local drug and alcohol program. And I think it was in a, in a group meeting. And uh, my, uh, again, a confession, my initial reaction was, boy, that sounds a little too clinical and soft. Um, I don't like where that's headed. I think it's going to be rejected by the public. So I had the wrong reaction initially. Um, my knee-jerk reaction was, was wrong, but that's what it was. Um, and as a matter of fact, just today, um, the Observer Reporter, which is the local newspaper in Washington and Greene Counties, did a very nice article on a young man who is raising money uh, for his mother's, in his mother's memory, for those in recovery, via a lemonade stand and just a jar at a, at a local uh, 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 salon. Um, and in its second sentence of the article, it says, he's turned his grief into a mission to help others battling drug addiction. Um, so it's a very well-intentioned and, and I'm sure well-received article, but it does use um, this language. Um, and I had always thought that it's a bit by George Carlin about euphemisms and the wrongfulness of euphemisms was kind of right on and that we've softened our language too much. But really um, what Adam has educated me about as well as Melissa is that um, it's not a softening of a language, it's being right. Uh, it's just getting things right. Uh, and that's the really where I, I would turn to the rules of conduct. Um, we are in a business that deals with facts and law. And uh, in order to appropriately apply the law, we have to have the facts correct. Um, and we should be dealing only in 
accuracy. As we can see in a national scale, we sometimes have, many times now have difficulty agreeing upon what the underlying facts are and everybody has their own facts they bring to the table, which spoils the entire process. So um, really uh, the bottom line about the rules of conduct and the ethical implications of this is that these are facts and they are facts presented to us by experts that are rooted in study and in evidence. And therefore, while it may in some circles be unpopular or annoying to others to use this language, it is only right to do so. And they may feel better about the way they use their language, but they are not correct in uh, doing so. So to turn to the rules of uh, professional conduct, we have two pages here. On the first slide, it is uh, some relevant rules of professional conduct related to attorneys. And the second one will be related to uh, judges. Uh, rule 3.1 deals with meritorious claims and, con and contentions and says that our duty is to use the legal procedure for the fullest benefit of the client's cause. The client's cause, if the client is someone in recovery, is to, uh, number one, not allow their uh, past use to be any more of a problem legally than it should be. And number two, to make sure that we are uh, advancing our client's case and the elements of it that have to deal with recovery uh, as best we can. And as best we can should include the right kind of language and person first language and as an underpinning, educating the trier of fact about um, what is best about our client's case. Uh, we have to inform ourselves about the facts of our client's cases. That means um, that we must understand not just their factual history, but any conditions of the client that are related to the case. And in this case, if a client is in recovery or even in active use, um, we, we should be educating ourselves about what that what might mean, no different than we would if say a client had a, another medical condition that might be a problem as it relates to say sentencing in a criminal case. We wanna uh, advance that, those facts as accurately as possible to the trier of fact. I should take a step to the side here for a moment and mention that I, I understand, I think most attorneys or all attorneys here will recognize that rules of professional conduct and violations that kind of happen every day um, of our duties are often not prosecuted, so to speak, by the disciplinary board. So I'm not suggesting that we should all be practicing in fear that if we make the slightest mis misstep here, that we're going to be disciplined by the disciplinary board. But even with that said, these are the rules of professional conduct. I think we all agree we want to hold ourselves to the highest standards, so we should be reviewing them and adhering to them as we can. Um, rule 3.3 .3 
candor towards the tri tribunal, shall not knowingly make a false statement of material fact. So it would be a false statement of material fact to um, mislead the court about what our client's condition would be um, or e offer evidence known to be false. Now, of course, again, this isn't me presenting this as some sort of fear, fear tactic we should impose upon ourselves. It could be used as a tool before the court where, you know, in a situation like Melissa, which many of us would find us in, having some uh, judge, magistrate, or hearing officer who's rough around the edges and might question us about this sort of thing, um, we could simply respond that this is my duty to present this to you as experts tell me to. Um, truthfulness to others in Rule 4.1. I just want to note that we should not, shall not make a knowingly false statement to a third person. So it's not just in court, it's in any representation uh, for our clients um, in or out of court. So you can go to the next slide, Adam. Um, as to the rules of judicial conduct, I guess I should preface it by saying, I imagine that most attorneys here, if not all of you, aren't gonna run and at the first offense of a judge, aren't gonna say, you just violated the rules of judicial conduct. You will soon find yourself before the judicial conduct board. Uh, and by the way, I hope that you still find my client's way today before I leave. So um, I understand that we're dealing here uh, sensitively with judges, of course. Uh, that said, there is the requirement that judges are not to be supposed to manifest, they're not supposed to manifest bias. And that includes bias based upon disability. Recovery is a disability. That is not subject to question. That is a recognized disability by the various legislation related to disability. Uh, and that, that is something that the judges are uh, duty bound to recognize and to not manifest bias or prejudice against. In the comments, uh, it's pretty strong language in the rules of judicial conduct when you take a look at them. If a judge shows bias, then it not only uh, disrupts the fairness of the proceeding, but it brings the judiciary into disrepute. Of course, we've had a very egregious situation in the Western part of the state about a judge showing bias for racially related reasons. And that judge, I think, has found himself temporarily suspended by the Judicial Conduct Board. I realize that that's not going to happen like that if somebody uh, shows bias against some, someone with a disability like recovery. But I am just sharing that, you know, reminding us that this is a rule of judicial conduct uh, and judges must adhere to the rule. Um, and then they give examples of bias, which can include demeaning nicknames, negative stereotyping, and attempted humor based on stereotyping. So I think if we do find ourselves with a judge, hearing officer, or magistrate who just completely thumbs their nose on it and we're feeling particularly bold, we could remind them of that language um, and their responsibility in their own rules. Um, 2.5 competence. I, I'm mentioning that I think this has a, a, a um, something to do not just with bias, but also 
judges confidently handling their their courtrooms. It do, judges do have a responsibility to have confidence, to understand the material, or at least allow themselves to be properly educated about the material before them. Um, and that is an applicable rule, I would uh, suggest. One important caveat though, under the comments, uh, now this is a comment to a different section, 2.2, impartiality and fairness. A judge sometimes may make good faith errors and those errors do not violate the, rule, the code of judicial conduct. So if we were to have a judge who would refer to someone as an addict or maybe even with stronger, more offensive language, if they do so in good faith, they're not committing an ethical violation. Uh, so, and that would bring me to the point that a lot of this does have to do with good faith versus bad faith. Um, I think, I hope that I've acted in good faith, but I have acted wrongfully about this at times in the past. So if I'm true to that good faith, I will adjust my language going forward and hope to lessen or eliminate um, any errors that I might, that I might make. Um, and just as some closing comments, um, in terms of being educated, I don't think I'm going to tell Melissa or any other attorney here who's been in courtroom something they haven't heard or seen. Judges, like anyone else, have their own views, uh, color, and ideas of the world. And they will bring those biases like anybody else would um, with them. And it's our, jo our job as attorneys and judges to try to shed those biases where they're problematic. Um, I have heard judges and others who have said they will not accept anyone in medically assisted treatment or medically assisted recovery. And to be fair to them, it is a very complicated, at least from a layperson's uh, viewpoint with respect to recovery, it is a complicated area where sometimes we do hear conflicted messaging. Um, so to be fair, they might hear from somebody that it's a, it's a big problem and there might be evidence to show that it could be a problem, but they should not be making up their own minds about what is good and what is not good with respect to recovery and what is acceptable and not acceptable. Um, but they will do that from time to time. Um, and the last comment I, I would make is that, of course, this doesn't just happen in the courtroom. This can happen in communities too, just to bring back the point of stigma that um, Adam had made. Um, we've worked with some folks in recovery and some folks in recovery housing. Um, and we've seen examples outside of our work, just in the local community. And a lot of it has to do with a, a not in my backyard mentality. And I have seen um, locals in uh, different areas who were stigmatized because they were in recovery and in past had substance use um, as we can't have them around our children. They are criminals. Uh, they are going to ravage the community, that sort of thing. 
uh, and that's where they bring it back to not in my backyard. Um, and to the extent that we're involved in those cases, there's an importance to educate the public um, to reduce that stigma or eliminate that stigma uh, because it, it, it has, as I think any of us who have dealt with that type of situation, has effects that permeate not just the courthouse, but our communities. Uh, so our work goes beyond the courthouse and what Adam and Melissa have brought here today, I suggest can be applied um, in our work, be it in the courtroom or for our clients out in the community. Um, I don't have any further comments. Uh, I see there were a few comments um, in the uh, chat, chat room there that um, perhaps Adam would like to comment on, given that it's related to uh, your area of expertise, and then see if there are any other questions or if you or Melissa have any closing remarks. Thank you, Brian. Um, I see if I'm reading this correctly, um, some comments from Wendy about substance use disorder uh, and court-ordered drug and alcohol evaluations and follow-through with treatment. Um, I'm a product of court-mandated treatment. Uh, it, it is a controversial idea. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but for some people, it's very beneficial. Um, in, in my field, we talk about external versus internal motivation. Uh, the hope is that external motivation is converted to internal motivation. In the best of cases, that's what happens. Um, certainly not always the case, but I, I've seen it work. Um, I think most of us probably understand the line there where you know we don't want judges practicing medicine from the bench and, and actually dictating what kind of treatment a person should receive um, that's the only thing i would say about that well if you don't mind me following up making a comment Please. as someone who was formerly uh the public defender for drug court for um about seven years i dealt with um, mandated recovery, um, I guess, mandated recovery um, during that time. And that was prevalent in drug court. And it was in its probably purest form because people were literally trying to get out of jail uh, and, and told that this is your key out of jail is to accept recovery. Uh, my experience with it is that a lot of people in mandated recovery, uh, it can work for them. Um, and it's, it shouldn't be something that should be a mark against someone in recovery that they're in court mandated recovery. When I first, the light first went on for me in drug court was back in 2006. I attended a couple of national conferences, which were fantastic. And one of the sessions one of the guys did was just this cool, the coolest session called 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, the old song by Paul Simon. And he talked about 50 ways to leave uh, drug or substance use uh, at that time. And just said, it doesn't happen the same way uh, 
for everybody. It can happen if you think about the words of, uh, you know, making new plans, stand, et cetera, that it can happen 50 different ways uh, and don't dictate how someone's going to find recovery. There's another question for you there, Adam. Uh, what does research say about the term treatment when referring to recovery support services? Yeah, and I, I just want to say whoever that was in 06 was ahead of their time. I would love to see that. Um, and something else you said I wanted to uh, comment on. Uh, as far as the term treatment, um, I don't know the answer to that. I can get you an answer. Um, this is this is usually what happens when we present this is um, people will start giving us specific terms that they want um, to know the research on. I don't know if treatment was one of the ones that was addressed. It, if it was, um, I will get you the answer. Uh, otherwise, I'll let you know that, that we don't know that one. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not aware of any issues with the word treatment. Um, so I'll find out the answer to that for you. I apologize. This is Kelly. I just need to launch the second of the two CLE poll boxes. Um, so attorneys, please respond to the question on your screen now. And I'm, I apologize. Please feel free to continue. I know what else I was going to comment on what Brian said. You know, even it's just been in the last few years that some of the views of recovery courts and drug courts towards medication-assisted treatment and recovery have changed. I think when I started, it was forbidden and, and they're allowing it now. So I, I've seen improvements just recently with that. Well, my clock's showing 2.59. I don't have any further comments unless Adam or Melissa do, or there's questions. I don't have anything other to add than to thank everybody and to thank Adam and Brian. Um, very much um, glad that you were able to join me um, and to be able to provide your knowledge and um, expertise. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody else was able to, to learn something to bring back um, to their offices, their communities, and to their clients. Hey, well, thanks everyone for being with us here today. Thanks to the presenters for the good dialogue and discussion and everybody have a good rest of the day. Yeah, great. Thank thanks, you. Thanks everyone. Bye. Take care.